The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly, good morning. Pat, good morning. Now, lots of things to talk about on your uh, agenda, and we'll get straight into the, the medical side of things. The hospital consultant's new contract, um, they're saying no. Well, first of all, many of them are are saying yes. So the IMO existing consultants, about 40% of them are saying yes. Um, About a third, maybe a little less than a third of the IHCA members are saying yes. We know that there are some consultants in the system who make so much money from treating private patients in public hospitals that they will probably never sign up to this public only contract. And that's fine. That's entirely their right. I would say maybe a third uh, have indicated, yes, we're looking to sign up straight away. And so that leaves a certain number. And what I'm hearing from around the system is some of them have been spooked by the the communications from the IHCA, which I believe were very negative and in my opinion were quite misleading. Um, And so they're saying, look, we're going to wait and see. We're going to wait and see how this works. But ultimately, Pat, here's what we're doing. Uh, As of today, we're offering a contract for €257,000 for 37 hours work. And when you add in on call, many consultants will earn over €300,000. And that compares to about €140,000 in the NHS. Uh, there are provisions in there for consultants in terms of work-life balance, uh, more flexible working. There are provisions in there, uh, €20,000 per consultant per year to invest in innovation, to invest in professional development uh, and training and research. It's a very attractive contract and mm. I have no doubt that a lot, of, a lot of consultants will sign up soon and I think as more see it, uh, see, their, see their colleagues on this new contract, I think more and more will sign up to it. Now, um, on TV news last night, I saw one representative of the consultants saying, this is not about money. This is about uh, health and safety. Uh, We are not convinced that we have the numbers of consultants there who can do the job to allow us to embrace this contract. So what they should have done if they believe that, if let's assume for a moment that that they believe what they're saying, if they believe that, then clearly what they should have done was say there is a fantastic new contract in place. It wasn't everything they wanted, but it's a lot. And they should have helped me and government send a message right around the world to all of the fantastic Irish trained consultants we have all around the world saying there is a fantastic new contract. The government is expanding the public health service like never before. And now is a time we would love you to come home and fill uh, hundreds and hundreds of posts which are available around the country. Surely, if they if they believe that we need more consultants, they would help us hire more consultants. Mm. But but if there is a shortage, and you acknowledge that by saying there are hundreds of vacancies around the country, do they have a point uh, that uh, if they change things now, if they opt for this new contract, that in some way uh, patient safety would be worse off than it is at the moment? Oh God, quite the opposite. So the whole point of this new contract is... Um, expanded rostering hours. So right now in most hospitals, consultants would be rostered about 40 40 hours a week. Now they do a lot more on call in fairness at the weekends uh, and in the evenings. And what the new contract is saying is, look, we're moving from about 40 hours rostered to 80 hours rostered. Now each consultant does the same amount of work. But what it means is that hospitals can roster consultants later in the evenings and at weekends, critically when patients need them. We know, for example, from the response, the fantastic response in January from the HSE to to those three really bad days, what happened? Uh, I convened a meeting with the HSE. I asked them to implement evening and weekend rostering. They did. 
to the great credit of our healthcare professionals, mm. not just the consultants, but the ancillary staff as well, the community staff, they all came on board and we saw about a 50% reduction in patients on trolleys in about six days. So, so we have to move to a modern healthcare system that works for patients mm. and where senior decision makers are available when patients need them. Do you believe this is about them keeping their weekends uh, clear or else, uh, you know, we've talked to to consultants who actually uh, maybe uh, or surgeons who operate a list on a Saturday, a, a private list. There are lots of consultants work either in the HSC uh, or indeed in private practice of the, uh, uh, on Saturdays, uh, as you say. But I'd like to be very clear, Pat. I want to differentiate very clearly between the consultants who, when I talk to them, they say this is a good contract. We're interested in this contract. Um, it gets rid of the pay inequality, which they had been mm-hmm. they had serious issues for a long time. They want to be there to treat their patients. They want the waiting list to fall. So I want to differentiate between the consultants themselves and the IHCA, who, in my opinion, I was very disappointed at the, the, the circular they sent to their members. The IMO sent a very balanced ballot to their members. The IHCA sent a circular that basically said, we've all sorts of problems with this contract. Here's all sorts of legal issues. I, we went through them. I don't agree with most of them. They didn't say a single positive thing about the contract. And then they said to their, to their members, tell us what you think. Now, there's no doctor. So in they I- told them what to think. Well, is that what you well, think? Well, <laughs> I, I, I would say, Pat, that there is no doctor in Ireland would treat a patient based on information collected in that way. I think the consultants themselves, certainly the ones I'm talking to, um, they appreciate that with this contract, we are trying to do the right thing by patients and we're trying to do the right thing by consultants. Yeah. Now, um, you may think that this is the best uh, you could do for for the health service, but I'm looking at the rostered hours under the new contract. They can be from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Monday to Friday. I'm thinking straight away A&E. Is that going to be treated differently? Because unless you can roster A&E consultants, A&E is going to suffer. Because people staying overnight, I've been there myself, Mm. I've seen it, who don't need to be there, who are not going to be seen for 15 or 16 hours anyway, and they're kept sitting in a chair. That's right. Because there's no consultant who will make a decision to say, this person, look, Sunshine, you are better off in your own bed, because I'm not going to be able to do anything for you until 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. That's one of the reasons this contract is so important. But it's not there in this in the rostered hours. Oh, they finish is. at 10 p.m. Oh, oh, no, it is in the rostered hours. So, so we're, we're moving from a situation where we have normally about 40 hours a week rostered, right? Normally it's nine to six, Monday to Friday, to 80 hours a week. So it's much later in the evenings and it's on Saturdays. And we know, as but still, I said, uh, you know, after the boozer closes, after the concert finishes, after the nightclubs pour out their hordes, um, it's long after 10 p.m. It's, it's, to an extent, that may be true. And indeed, health and social care professionals and uh, nurses are rostered 24-7. Uh, NCHDs, yep. the junior doctors, are rostered 24-7. Um, nonetheless, this doubles the number of rostered hours. And we yeah, but you not- still don't have that consultant there. So if you do have an issue after rolling out of the nightclub, mm. uh, there's no point. The earliest a consultant's going to see is 8 o'clock in the morning. You might as well go home in a taxi. Certainly, based on the admission profile that we see through the week and at the weekends, if we now have senior decision makers on site up to 10pm Monday to Friday and on Saturdays, and remember they're on call on Sundays as well, it will make a big, big difference. to. But they're only there on Saturdays from 8 until 6. Well, right now they can't be rostered on Saturdays at all. Although what we do know, Pat, is that the the best performing hospitals on emergency departments, like Waterford, which hasn't had a patient on a trolley in three years, 
um, their consultants are there at the weekends and their consultants are there late in the, late, late in the evenings. And, and that the, really is the... I, I know you're saying, could we not have gone further? And, and Sundays. No Sunday rostering. Yeah, I, I know you're saying, could we not have gone further? What we wanted to do was strike a balance that worked for patients, but critically that meant that, we, that it was also very attractive for consultants. So right now, Pat, we have about 3,800, 3,900 consultants in the country. I think we need about 6,000. We're way below the EU average. Mm. We've about eight. So you, you can't do the really modern thing, which would be have, having seven days, 24-7 rostering of consultants, because if you do that, they won't come in their droves from overseas. They'll figure they can have a cushier life elsewhere. Well, that is the reality. The reality is these are highly sought after, highly trained uh, healthcare professionals. There is a global demand. By the way, we also have the same demand for nursing and health and social care professionals. We have to have a public health service that people yeah, but you want couldn't to do it to the in. nurses. You couldn't say no working on Sunday, nurses. Uh, you can stay at home. You can go to sports with your kids on Sundays. Um, you can't do that because nurses are vital. So that's it, true. I would have thought the consultants are vital too. Maybe they don't think they're vital. Uh, no, they, 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 they are vital. Of course, of course they're vital. Essentially what we wanted to do, Pat, is find a contract, first and foremost, that works for patients. But secondly, that we had uh, doctors all around the world, many of whom trained okay, here in a Your message saying, is that we have we made massive home. compromises. This is not as far as we'd love to go. We've gone as far as we can, bearing in mind patient safety and making the job attractive. That's your message to them. Yes, and I would add that what we now have after a year and a half of negotiation is a very attractive contract that works for patients and that works mm. for doctors. The final thing is about uh, what they can do in their own time, in uh, you know, off-site, because mm. there'll be no more uh, working in the public hospitals under this new contract doing your private work. But it's pointed out that they could have their 37 hours, 37 hours done in three days. Yeah. Which would leave them with four days if they don't want to, to take a couple of days off, four days to coin it in private practice off site. The initial government uh, position when I came into office was that the new contract would have no private work whatsoever. So you would do your, your work in an NHS hospital um, and then you would be prohibited, let's say on a Saturday morning, a Sunday morning, from doing private work that you wanted to do. Uh, I sought a change to that. I didn't think that was in the right in the, in the interest of patients. I think if a consultant or a nurse or a teacher wants to work, you know, do grinds or do private care on a on a Saturday or whenever it may be, I, I think they have a right to do that. I think we need to have as many patients treated as possible. Um, and it was a core demand of the IMO. It was a core demand of the IHCA. And when I spoke to consultants around the system, that was the, the two big things they said to me, Pat, were one, we have to get rid of the pay inequality brought in in 2012. That's done. And secondly, you have to let us do in our own, you have to let us work as doctors in our own time if that's what we want to yeah, do. But and I agree on, with both Not of those. in a public hospital. Absolutely not in a public What'll hospital. What will happen in the children's hospital when it opens up? Because there are private suites there. Anyone who is on the new contract will not do any private care in any public hospital. Full stop. Um, yeah, we are, we are obliged under the existing contract to facilitate consultants treating private patients in public hospitals up to 20% of their time. But can I just be clear, on the Children's Hospital and on the New National Maternity Hospital, there will not be separate private areas, fancier areas for private patients. The facilities that we're legally obliged to make available will be exactly the same facilities that public patients are treated in. 
Now, uh, let's uh, talk about other developments. Uh, Good news, the abolition of the daily charges in hospitals, and that's uh, going to be effective very soon. That's right. So from April, as, as your listeners will be aware, one of the big reforms we're bringing in in this government is a substantial reduction in the costs of healthcare for patients. The latest one, which I got agreement from Cabinet yesterday, was that adult inpatient hospital charges will be abolished. Now, that's a cost of up to €800 Euro a year for a patient who may be incredibly sick uh, and having to find an extra €800. Euro. We abolished the charges for children last year. Uh, earlier this year, we uh, raised the free contraception age from 25 to 26. It's going up to 30 later this year. Um, later this year, we're also bringing in for the first time ever. It's really, it's it's a really uh, pr- important move. Free fertility treatment, state-funded fertility treatment. How many cycles? I- IVF. That's all being worked worked through at the moment. But there's a substantial amount of money there for that. And critically, Pat, this year we're phasing in about four or five hundred thousand GP cards. So it's part of a very significant ongoing reduction in costs, ultimately towards our goal, which is universal healthcare. Now, on the negative side, then you get the headlines about we bought 3000 plus ventilators during COVID. We the max we could have used, never mind needed, was something around 350. Why did we overbuy? A lot of money. Yes, but let's go back to 2020. Let's go back to those images coming in on the 6-1 News of patients in Italian hospital car parks. No, I appreciate all of right. that, but if we could only have deployed 300, that's the capacity of our system. Why did we order 10 times that amount? Well, well we may know that now, but I, I mean, I was, I was opposition health spokesperson at the time and I and everybody else was saying to the HSE, get as many ventilators as you can. So I, I will never criticise the HSE for buying too many ve- ventilators. Imagine they had bought too few. Imagine what that what that would have done in the scheme of the response to COVID at a time when we really didn't know how bad it was going to be. The HSE did what we asked them to do, which was buy as many ventilators as they could get their hands on. All right. So you're taking political responsibility, uh, not you personally, but your predecessors for saying, go at it. Oh, budget unlimited. Yes. And I will I will fully uh, accept that in opposition. That's exactly what I was asking them to do. Now, the Tony Holohan report. Uh, which has been on your desk. Um, it's about to be published. Are, are we right in thinking that? The intention is to publish it soon. There is a process that we uh, are going through that we have to respect that I'm obviously taking legal advice on to make sure that everyone's uh, uh, rights are protected and that it's done in the right way. Um, there could be implications. <laughs> Very, you know, ironic, paradoxical implications involved in all of this, because this was a kind of a sweetheart deal organised uh, to, to uh, provide a position in Trinity College at enormous expense to the state because there was going to be an endowment from the state to Trinity College for years. It, no, there wasn't. I, I, I don't want to get into the detail of it now because the, re- the, the report is still, being, is still being looked at, so I, I, I don't want to get into the detail. But what, what I would say, Pat, is ultimately this was a proposed secondment uh, that a lot of people thought was a thought was a good idea that that you know may not have been done in exactly but normally the right the, way. The college would pay all the expenses attached. It turned out the state was going to pay. So you're going to have a a new chief medical officer that you have to pay. You've got a, a retiring chief medical officer who would normally get a pension and not a, a, a full salary. But the state is paying both. It, like I say, the report will be published uh, soon, uh, and all of that can be uh, can be looked at. But this was a like, would it have been a good idea for Doctor Hula and with his experience 
uh, to be working as a professor, leading thinking on future pandemic preparedness. I, I think it would have been. But we need to look at the, the process and need to know, you know, for these things in the future, what, what lessons are to be learned. Now, waiting lists, you have good news again for your cabinet colleagues that waiting lists have, have gone down. I'm always amazed at waiting lists that go into the millions because mm. it looks like when you read those stats that half the population is crocked, that we should all be hobbling around the place. And clearly that ain't so. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so last year was the first year since 2015 that the waiting lists have fallen. It was an important year. This is going to be the second year and we're going to keep driving on now. So what I was able to share with Cabinet yesterday was that since the the peak, waiting lists were far too long before COVID arrived and we know they got a lot bigger because of COVID. Since the peak, the number of men, women and children waiting longer than the agreed Slauncher Care times fell by 24%. That's about 150,000 less patients waiting longer than that 10 to 12 Are they getting weeks. treated or are you finding out the people who are on double waiting lists or treble waiting lists and therefore you can maybe confine them to one? That would make the numbers fall anyway. Yeah, there's a lot of different aspects to the waiting list uh, plan. So part of it is waiting list validation, exactly as you've just said. And can we do that at the moment? We can, not as well as we would like to. Uh, Ireland is a laggard in e-health. We don't have unique patient identifiers. We don't have integrated systems. And ultimately, that's what's that's what's needed. Is for there that. a GDPR issue about using the PPS, for example? No, I, I I got government agreement last year that we would use the PPSN. That's exactly what we're using. Um, there's a health information bill which uh, I'll be bringing forward very shortly. That lays the legislative uh, groundwork for a new e- a new approach in e health. We are laggards, as a lot of work needs to be done. So on the waiting lists, we've had a twenty four percent reduction. Um, from the peak in terms of those waiting longer than those agreed 10 to 12 uh, 12 week targets and on the longest waiters the the, the progress has been uh, very positive so last year the number of people waiting more than 18 months for an outpatient appointment fell believe it or not by 40% and on scopes the number of patients waiting for a scope more than 12 months fell by nearly 90% so we're seeing very positive Still, movement for the longest 12 waiters. months for a scope is a long time if you're worried oh it's far too long but a 90% reduction or 87% reduction in that number in one year. That's why that's so important. Um, a couple of other things. There's never a dull moment in health. And then we have a fire in Wexford General. Um, a question I, I asked uh, at the time of the fire, was it insured or does the HSE carry its own insurance? Yes, you did ask me that. I, d- I don't have an answer uh, to that for you. But what I can tell you this morning is that there's good progress being made in terms of reopening. So the emergency department, the plan is that that's reopened by the end of the week which is fantastic. Um, On beds, 82 of the beds are now uh, operational in the next few days. That's going to go up to 124 of the beds. 80 of the beds are going to remain out of commission for some time because of more extensive uh, damage. And then on endoscopy, we're looking at that unit was damaged. I was in it. Um, We're looking at a modular endoscopy unit and critically outpatients, they uh, reopened last Monday. So good progress was made. Now, I'm sure your officials and yourself uh, were asking yourselves, suddenly you've got a couple of hundred patients that need to be moved and they all find beds somewhere else. Why can't they do that every day for me when I'm being embarrassed by trolley numbers? Well, uh, as we were discussing last time, there is extra capacity in the system. We've added 18,000 extra staff. We've added 1,000 extra beds. We're building new hospitals. The reason we're now bringing the waiting list down for the first time in seven or eight years is because we now have that extra capacity. So let's take the the winter trolley situation where we had three really bad days. There were many other bad days, but three three particularly bad days. 
the excess capacity was used to deal with that. But when you do that, you cancel outpatient appointments, you cancel planned procedures for patients. And so you stall your progress on the waiting lists. So essentially what we're doing is building up a system and using all the private care we can get to do two things at the same time. Manage, provide care to patients that need it on, a, on, a, on an ongoing basis and deal with this huge backlog of patients that has been building up over uh, over over many years th- them as well so that's what the extra capacity is being used for um a couple of other things uh, the the covid inquiry whatever form it takes mm. are, are you have you concerns uh, no that your name might be writ large in no. dispatches no i th- i think that probably will happen um I, I don't have concerns i think a look back is important um there are things ireland did well on covid um, in terms of excess mortality, vaccine rollout, internationally Ireland is regarded as having responded as a um, nation. And we also had our deficits well. as you and I even spoke. I mean, you were in favour of masking and you were in favour of antigen testing at a time when Neffet was not. Yes, yes, I was. Yes, I was. And we also had an awful lot of people, for example, die in the nursing homes yeah. and in other places. So we do need a review. The reason we need a review, it's not about going after anybody. It's about saying, are we as well prepared as we can be? Have we learned everything we can learn to protect the country in the future? Now, as you would imagine, there's already a lot of things we're, do- we're, we're doing. Um, we've sanctioned a new rapid response force for the ambulance service, 200 strong. We've moved to consultant contracts for public health doctors. Um, we've sanctioned a huge increase in staff and capability for the surveillance centre, the HSPC, that, uh, that essentially mm-hmm. monitors diseases and, and inf- you know, all of these things happening in the country. So there's a lot we're doing already. But is there more we can learn? I've no doubt there is. Yeah. Uh, a question just popped up. Uh, can the range of services available at pharmacies be expanded? We had a pharmacist on during the week saying we're the poor relation as far as the Department of Health is concerned. There's so much more we could do. Ease the pressure on GPs. You know, if someone is, needs to go to a GP, the pharmacist will surely tell them. But oftentimes, for example, if someone has to get an over-the-counter prescription or medicine on the GMS, they have to go to their doctor, get the doctor to sign off on something that if you have the money, you can buy it over-the-counter without any prescription. Not for long. Not for long. They are so right. We we significantly underutilise our pharmacies. Our pharmacists are so well-trained. They're such highly skilled professionals. And we only tap into a fraction of what they're capable of. So as you've just said, someone on a GMS, uh, 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 someone with a medical card, in order to get the -the over-the-counter medicine for free, has to go and talk to a GP. That's a waste of their time. It's a waste of the GP's time when they should just be able to go into the pharmacist, just like anyone. So that's going to come. That's going to come. Um, We're looking at a minor ailment scheme as well. We're looking at um, prescribing for pharmacists. In fact, the RCSI students now are the first students who are going to graduate as pharmacists who've been trained in prescribing. It's something the NHS already does. I want to see that rolled out um, much more broadly. Our, our, as you as you and I have talked about before, Pat, we're in the middle of a fundamental reform of our healthcare service where we are shifting as much care as possible into the community. Mm-hmm. Enhanced community care, chronic disease management, um, much more investment in general practice, much more investment in pharmacies. We need all of our healthcare professionals working to the to the extent of their license and their ability and the pharmacists who say that 
are I, I fully agree uh, I'm aware of it and we're, we are we are okay. moving in, in the right direction uh, Finally on, on something not related to your own portfolio but something that's of course in the news overnight the ending of the eviction ban now you have admitted that you're an accidental landlord yourself and so on and so forth mm. and I've heard all the, the uh, stuff um, rolled out by the relevant minister and other colleagues saying look you have to embrace this it's got to end sometime it seems to be having a negative effect on the number of small landlords who want to get out of the market because of over-regulation and so on and so forth. But I put it to you that, uh, you know, the spectre of maybe a left-wing government would be, no matter what this government does, will keep the landlords exiting in their droves. Well, anecdotally, yes, I have heard people say that they are worried about a Sinn Féin-led government and when they listen to Owen O'Brien, who on the radio yesterday morning seemed to throw in the towel on the rental market and small landlords. Small landlords rent out 86%, 17 in in every 20 rental properties are rented out by small landlords who have one or two properties. We know that they are selling up and what government has to do really is two things. We have to make sure that tenants have security of tenure and they have protections in place and we have to make sure that there's enough properties to actually rent because we talk about various You know, short term schemes, which Minister O'Brien is bringing in, which are really important, like a local authority. If someone is selling a property and you've got a tenant in situ, the local authority coming and saying, we'll buy the property, we'll keep the tenant in situ and we'll 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 increase the social housing stock. These are really important. But ultimately, what matters is we increase housing stock. Uh, Minister O'Brien has overseen the biggest increase in social housing Mm. stock last year in 48 years. I think that's very encouraging. And we have to make sure that there are sufficient rental properties available for renters. Yeah, but I think everyone out there who's uh, stuck for housing will feel like Oliver Twist saying to Fagan, may I have some more, sir? We need more houses more quickly. And that anyway, we know uh, that that's um, a big dilemma for government and uh, government's uh, rise and fall on such matters. Mm -hmm. But uh, Stephen Donnelly, Minister for Health, thank you very much for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you, Pat. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.